The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Okay, this is John Howard with Capital Weekly, and welcome to our regular podcast. I've got with me again Paul Mitchell, the data guru, vice president of Political Data Inc., or PDI as other people. I always stick the ink in there. Sure. Uh, Paul, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I was just looking at a story you've just done, which our listeners are going to have to wait for until Monday. We're taping this on Friday. We'll post this uh, in SoundCloud on Monday, our podcast. Okay, great. Thanks again for doing it. this is about digital campaigning, and and your point is digital campaigning. It sort of rewrote the rules this time around, and is going to continue to do that. Uh, what's involved in that? What what do you mean by digital campaigning? Yes, yeah, so digital campaigning is essentially the uh, the use of you know social media, websites, um, less so email, but email is a part of it, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, and and moving not just messaging and all that kind of stuff to the digital space, but actually moving real dollars, real campaign dollars. There were some campaigns that were being told by their consultants that they needed to spend 35% of their budget on digital. Okay. And digital has transformed significantly uh, over the last you know few decades. I remember the first time, it was in 1996, and I was at American University, and I was watching... Uh, political ad, and for the first time at the bottom of the political ads, that cycle would have the URL of the website for the campaign. And that and was it, sophisticated. That was the thing, right? It was like the campaigns all had to have a website. Yeah. And um, 1996. God, yeah. you're really old. You don't well, look that old. <laughs> well, 96, I was working on websites and and, uh, um, and doing stuff back then. So the uh, uh, but the transformation of that essentially has happened in a couple phases. The first was. Okay, we have to have a digital presence, like this obligatory, we're going to have a website, we have to have some place where our images go, I guess maybe we have, should have a Facebook account, we must have a Twitter account, like this kind of obligatory uh-huh. kind of dragging of campaigns into at least some minimalistic uh, digital engagement, mostly so that you couldn't be made fun of for not having a website. It was almost like you were doing it so that people couldn't say, you're not a serious candidate, he doesn't have a website. Yeah. Then the second phase of it was, well, campaigns realized they could actually spend money on things like, you know, digital ads, banner ads is what they were generally called. Um, And uh, this actually was a really great thing for consultants, uh, you know, going through, you know, from the early 2000s, you know, 2000 through like 2008, 2010. And one of the great things about it for consultants was it was like you call your graphic designer, you call the Fresno Bee, you get the ad up, you can spend money quickly, and it goes up and it's basically like lawn signs on the internet. Like, these Could you measure the impact of those? I know the digital is hard for you'd us. You get to... like a report on clicks or yeah. something like that. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, mostly it was just easy, cheap, fast. Yeah. And in the independent expenditure world in which I played for a while, you know, if you needed to drop $60,000 tomorrow, yeah. uh, the easiest way to do it was to get a bunch of digital ads thrown up. It was just kind of like throwing up on the internet with your campaign's messaging. Very non-strategic. Uh, you know, it was using the internet as a means of getting a message out like you would use 
a lawn sign or a mm-hmm. billboard or, you know, last election cycle, did you see that somebody put like a banner on a plane and drove it around, flew it around the Capitol? You know, oh, I did, yeah. things like that, you know, I mean, that's essentially what it is. It's like this not, it's this non-targeted outreach. And um, so in this new phase, we've gotten to using digital in a much more strategic way. Mm-hmm. And we've moved from this idea of digital as like lawn signs and billboards to digital as like political mail. The beautiful thing about political mail is uh, you can, as a consultant, send political mail uh, to targeted universes. You can create a mail piece that's for your you know, high-propensity voter that uh, is very persuadable to your candidate's messages on choice and education and the environment or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You can send a different mailer to um, Latinos, and that message might be different. The images on it might be different. You can send a different mailer to just the Armenian population about this one niche issue that the Armenian population cares about. Um, You can send targeted campaign stuff to people you're trying to turn out to vote. So like GOTV targets versus persuasion. Mm -hmm. All this stuff you can do in mail, and that's now transitioning to digital. Mm What essentially happens in digital is you can order a voter file just like you do for a mailing universe. You can cut it up as I want Democrats that voted in these three elections that you know are homeowners that live in this part of town. Um, and you can cut that universe in a voter file and you send it to a third party vendor that does a match. And this what is they the do digital is, match vendor. This is digital match vendor. They'll do matches to cookies, they'll do matches to Facebook, they'll do matches even geo-fencing, geo-targeting matches. Mm-hmm, yeah. And uh, they put your target into a digital space where then you can buy ads that only go to that target. So then I see a different ad on my Facebook than my wife sees on her Facebook. Mm-hmm. Or I see a different ad on my phone than my stepkids see on their cell phones. And this goes to the handhelds too, It can go to handhelds, it can go to regular computers, it goes on Facebook, it goes on different mediums. And um, this has just been a real eye-opener for campaigns, and consultants love it because it gives them back the um, real kind of targeting aspect of what they do uh, in the digital space, and it also is relatively inexpensive, it can run for long periods of time. There are people right now running in 2018 that are already starting their digital campaigns. Why did and they start it so early? You mentioned that. It's so cheap. It's so cheap, and you can go in and start to like just do soft ads early. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm John Howard, and I want to hear what you think is right for the future of California. Mm-hmm. And you can have that bleed out over a longer period of time um, and do it for, you know, a few thousand dollars as opposed to a statewide mailing, which would cost, yeah. you know, $100,000, you know? Is, is so. the same, the targeting principle, is that the same uh, <clears throat> that, um, I, I see this all the time on Amazon especially. I use Amazon. Yeah. It seems like every time I look at something on Amazon, like potentially to buy it, then the next day I get nine ads that show up on my web, or whatever I'm browsing, yeah, 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 regardless yeah. of the site. I mean, it just, they pop up. This is the same kind of thing you're talking Well, yeah, about. you can do that too. So what mm-hmm. you can do is you can target people from the voter file because they, you know, they're voters. You can also target people who have clicked on your website and then basically retargeting them is what that's called, mm-hmm. where you uh, all of a sudden, you know, I'm still, I just took a screenshot of it the other day. I'm still getting ads 
selling me tickets to go to the Final Four that actually happened last <laughs> month. But uh, since I relentless, per- well, since I'd gone on these sites to try to search for tickets, yah um, now I get these ads to try to tell sell me tickets. Is there a turnoff factor? I mean, if, if you're sending stuff to my handheld, do you get the same kind of thing where if you call too much at home, yeah. like robo calls, people say, "Oh, I'm screwing." Yeah. So, up. and actually, Google's been working on this. Uh, there's actually a couple issues. One is you can, when you're working with a digital ad vendor, you can actually work on how many times you want to have an individual see that ad. Um, so you might say, I want this person to see the ad four times a day, no more than four times a day, mm-hmm. um, or four times a week, or whatever it's going to be. And uh, one of the challenges, though, and the digital space is working on this, is that you're not just seeing Google ads, you're seeing Facebook ads, you're seeing ads on Twitter, you're seeing you know, ads on your cellular, on your cell phone, you're seeing ads when you go to um, uh, a website to read your articles about whatever's your hobby, and at the bottom there's the little ads that say, like, you know, this person made a million dollars, and this person has perfect skin, and this person's running for governor. Those kind of ads that are, are kind of shoved into um, actual content you're reading, um, you know, you, you're getting so many different hits from so many different places. So, yeah, there is kind of this issue of... Um, too much. But web ads and digital is definitely less obtrusive than phone calls. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. less costly than mail. Um, it's easier to ramp up and engage than field programs. Like field programs, the knocking on doors, the mm-hmm. phone banking, the, the voter contact that labor way. Labor-intensive. That labor-intensive mm-hmm. takes a lot of time, a lot of resources, um, and it's not something you can say something happens on Wednesday morning and by Wednesday night you're up in the field with it, mm-hmm. you know. When, when um, you talked earlier, um, you mentioned geofencing. Yeah. Um, so that's both geographic and time driven, right? So what you can do with geofencing is, let's say you have a target of voters, um, high propensity Democratic and Republican voters in the city of Sacramento, and let's say the city of Sacramento is trying to pass a uh, um, a new sports arena measure like we just had, right? Mm-hmm. You could literally take all the voters in Sacramento that are your target of likely voters, and you could geofence every sports arena in the state or every sports arena in the country. And if any resident of Sacramento that's a registered voter goes into a sports arena, checks their phone, clicks on a link, goes to the basically gets their IP address catched by mm-hmm. a cookie filter, then all of a sudden you get a you get that voter tagged. This Sacramento area voter was at the Oakland A's game. This one was at the Golden State Warriors game. This one went to a Giants game. This mm-hmm. one, you know, went to a concert. This one went to an arena here. This one went to a sports event there. And you could, over a period of time, essentially build a list of people mm-hmm. who have taken an action of being at a sports arena and logging into their phone. So if you're doing a campaign. So if you're doing a campaign, now you know, like, these are people who have actually been to a sports arena. Yeah. You could, as an example, let's say you were doing a library bond. You could geofence every library in your area. And over a period of time, you could actually capture who goes to libraries. And in a negative way, one of the negative articles that's been done around this geofencing concept was that a pro-life group was geofencing Planned Parenthood clinics. Oh, uh-huh. And so they were trying to find out who goes to a Planned Parenthood so that they could send them messages about not choosing yeah. abortion. Sure. Yeah. That is probably something that I wouldn't advocate and I don't think is necessarily yeah. fair. And it's getting into health and privacy issues. Um, but uh, it does show kind of the far reaches of this. Um, the but wh- things- 
when you you guys um, you know political strategists want typically wants increased turnout. Mm -hmm. How does this help you boost? Well, turnout? you want increased turnout of your for base, your guy yeah. for your base. Yeah. Um, so that's one nice thing about this. You can take your low propensity voter universe. Okay. The low propensity voter universe, which in a lot of cases uh, are people who move a lot, maybe their registration's out of date, whatever, um, and you can still reach them using digital, and you can do messages to try to get them to turn out and vote or to re-register if they've moved, and you can you know have things that have them click on something to go to uh, you know support a candidate or whatever and do these kind of engagements. Um, and you could target just the low propensity voters. So instead of having a digital campaign where you just say, okay, Google, I'm sending you $100,000 to do targeting of ads to people in California for my campaign, you can say, okay, Google, I'm sending you $20,000 and a list of the you know, 130,000 people who have missed uh, one of the last two primaries and uh, I feel like is going to be unlikely to vote this election cycle, and I'm going to be sending them ads, encouraging them to re-register or to mail in their ballot or to know where their polling place is or, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, to remember it's election day. Um, and so now you've got a strategic ad to a targeted universe, a mm -hmm. much less expensive ad buy because you're able to buy to a smaller segment of the population. And uh, you're able to put a message on there that's specific to just that group. You don't want to put a ad that says, you know, fight for respect for the Armenian genocide, you know, on just like a blast to everybody who goes to the Fresno Bee one day. Mm -hmm. But in the community of Fresno, mm -hmm. where there is a higher Armenian population, you might want to target an ad on the Armenian genocide and the issues around it. And, mm -hmm. yeah. and uh, you know, you're honoring uh, something having yeah. to do with the anniversary of the Armenian genocide to just the Armenian voters in that district. Does this help you with polling at all? How does this get into when you're actually doing surveys? I know you've done a lot of that too. Mm -hmm. uh, does this is this part of that? Well, no, it's not directly mm -hmm. used in polling. However, I have seen projects that have um, sought to try to identify mm -hmm. voters who could take a survey, like an online survey, yeah. by using uh, digital. Mm -hmm. So essentially, like we worked on a, with a client on a project that uh, wanted to try to find voters who were likely to vote um, through Facebook ads, getting them to agree to take a survey uh, from a link on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And so essentially driving them to a survey, uh, to an online survey. One of the challenges with online, online panels, is what they're generally called, is that you get voters who say like, oh yeah, I'm a registered voter. Sure I am. Like, it's like if I knew that somebody was doing an online survey of people who buy you know, barbecues, and they said, do you eat meat? I'd say, oh, yeah, I totally eat meat because I'm totally going to, I want to take the survey to be, get my mm -hmm. free, you know, Target gift card for $5. Sure. So yeah. I'm going to tell you that I'm, that I'm a, that I barbecue all the time so I can take the survey. And so people will say, yeah, I'm a voter. Uh, so they'll take a survey so they can get their $5 gift card for Target or whatever. Um, that's a lot, those are called online panels. Mm -hmm. And, um, one of the problems with online panels, as we've seen in some national stuff and stuff, some stuff in Europe, is that you get people who claim that they are registered or claim that they vote more regularly than mm -hmm. they actually do, um, and it skews the results of your poll. Well, if, if the, on the flip side, what you could do is you could send out web-based 
media targeted to people who you want to have take your survey because you know that they're registered voters and likely to vote, and those go on Facebook and those go on. Mm -hmm. Then you're building your Mm -hmm. online survey off of that. Um, while that still does have methodological problems, uh, it, it at least avoids the methodological problem of getting people in your survey who aren't even registered to vote. You, you know who people are, if people are registered by name, you know their names, and that's in the voter file, mm-hmm. but there's no match with IP addresses or any digital, is there? No, so what we do is that's what the third-party vendors do. Oh. We send to the third-party vendors um, from the voter file name, address, phone number, multiple phone numbers, sometimes or best phone number, email addresses or best email address sometimes. And then they do the cookie matching, they do the Facebook matching, they do the matching yeah. to the IP addresses. Once they have that, uh, then they can target. And one of the things that's actually an issue with digital targeting that we talk about is kind of the caveats about digital targeting. Mm-hmm. Is that if I send a list of 100,000 people in Stockton to a digital ad vendor, um, there's going to be this drop-off. Maybe 60,000 of them will actually match to... A Google, a Google uh, cookie, uh, um, a Facebook universe, an IP address. So there's this drop off. Why is there a drop off? Because it's not just not perfect matches. Like you know, not everybody has fallen into the digital net like you and I have. Um, It's one of these things where, like, if I send mail to 100,000 people, it's probably going to get to 98,000 people once you account for a few bad addresses. If I make phone calls to 98,000, 200,000 people, I'm probably going to get through to you know, 80,000 of them once you account for bad phone numbers. Um, and when I do digital, maybe I'm going to get, from those 100,000 people, maybe I'm going to connect to 60,000 uh, actual digital lives that we can identify. Uh-huh. All right. Then when you push ads to those folks, um, you know, they're able to see and interact with the ad, but there is this kind of a, a drop-off and a, a lack of saturation. And so what we've actually told a lot of campaigns is, yes, great, spend 35% of your budget on digital. But don't try to believe that this is saturation level. You can't run a campaign when at the outset 40% of voters aren't going to end up falling into your – they're not going to end up seeing mm-hmm. your lawn sign. They're not going to end up getting your mailing. They're not going to end up getting your phone call. Yeah. You is there any way of like limiting it. that drop-off? Can you yeah, mean, there refine is a, it? Yeah. And, you know. Well, there is this one way that campaigns have tried to use to limit that drop-off, and that's called using similars. And – what that means is that these digital media companies, they usually do ads for, you know, auto sales or for, you know, other kind of commercial oh, yeah. things. And so they're used to doing digital ad buys where they say, okay, the campaign is targeting men over 35 who, you know, have incomes of X. And uh, what they'll do is they'll get your voter list and they'll say, hey, great, you know, you sent us this 100,000 people, we match 60. We can bring it back up to 100,000 people by, by finding 40,000 similar people. That hmm. just destroys the entire concept of starting with a voter file to begin with. Because mm-hmm. what you'll do is you'll send in your 60,000 people who are your targeted high-propensity voting Democrats <clears throat> um, that, you know, have voted in two of the last two, you know, primaries yeah. and, you know, um, live in households with all Democrats, whatever the target is. Mm-hmm. And you send it to the third-party company. They say, great, we match 60. We're going to give you 40,000 similars. But those similars are God knows what. Those similars could just be, you know, white homeowners over 35. No known voter history. No, you don't know if they're registered yeah. to vote. You, you know, it reminds know me if... a little bit of real estate comps when you're buying a house or you're selling a house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get valued immediately in your neighborhood, and those are the comparable sales. Yeah. But 
they also go out if they don't find those, and they go out four blocks, five blocks, two miles, three miles in a completely different area. And yeah, use so those now you've ruined the, you know. your ability to target. Now, <clears throat> instead of being able to push the ad that yeah. says, you know, X, Y, and Z about, you know, the Armenian genocide or X, Y, and Z about uh, my support for environmental policies and or my support for higher taxes for X, Y, and Z or lower taxes, yeah. now all of a sudden with all these similars in there, You've just reintroduced a bunch of junk, and, and you can't you can't verify it at year end whether they really are similar or how similar they are. You, mean, you can't really do it, and to... it just it just muddies it up. Yeah. So it's better to go with the smaller universe, accept the fact that you're not getting saturation, yeah. but also know that all these voters are in your target. Yeah. Um, that way, you don't end up with a situation where some third party vendor said, "Oh, these people are similar," and now you're sending messages that are specified for a Democrat who is an environmentalist. And that message is going to a very similar person yeah. who happens to be Republican who, you know, uh, who doesn't believe in global warming. Do you, do you get negative feedback or, you, you know, from people, the same people who are irritated at getting robocalls or something? Is there a digital feedback? Yeah. I'll tell you the funniest Get off my feedback. handheld or, you know. The biggest digital feedback I've seen that's been negative was in the last election cycle in 2016. One of the big statewide ballot measures was doing very aggressive digital um, but they weren't using uh, voter file targeting. Oh. And so what I saw, which was hilarious, was all this Twitter traffic with people in other states saying, why am I getting these ads for Prop X? And so you had this, you know, and I just kind of sat quietly back. I didn't want to, like, tell the consultants, like, uh, excuse me, you made a huge mistake here. Um, but, yeah, there is a bunch of this feedback that I've seen of, you know, campaign ads that are that are being thrown onto digital in the old way, yeah. which was this yeah. just like scattershot, you know, just throw a bunch of money at it kind of version of targeting. And uh, and yeah, so you get that. Yeah. The other thing is if you're doing a non targeted and you're getting the wrong messages of the wrong people. If you're if you're um, running for office and you're sending out your environmental you know, I'm going to tax gas guzzlers and I'm going to, yeah. you know, clamp down on polluters. And you're accidentally sending that to a guy that drives a big Ford F-50, doesn't believe in global warming. And, yeah. and you know, uh, you're going to get negative feedback. Yeah. That's the beauty of mail. You can target mail to the people who are targeted to be X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And you can avoid the people who are against you and that's the beauty of yeah. now this new digital is that you can actually target to people yeah. that you want um you know the, the worst feedback we got and we've talked about this but the one that amazed me in 2016 was the uh the the fact that people's emails are part of the public record those of people who've registered to yeah. vote, and a lot of people don't know that and so we kept getting these calls of why are you invading my privacy i'm suing you i'm going to the yeah, yeah, you know yeah, yeah, just yeah. on a very innocuous survey but yeah you know yeah, I mean, that's normal. I mean, every yeah. campaign that has ever done it, the job right has gotten sure. people yeah. saying, stop calling me. What, what did mean, you mean about uh, digital terrorism? I wanted to ask you that. Oh, that was, you know, the when you look at what happened. This is a new term du jour, right? I, yeah. I, I feel it coming, right? <laughs> so the um, what we've also seen in the digital space that's gotten a lot more media attention has been this proliferation of fake news, of, you know, complete falsehoods, of... Uh, bots and net bots uh, basically taking over um, in the digital space. And what ends up happening and what we're finding out happened in this last election cycle is, let's say there's, um, you know, an article about 
the pizzeria that you know John Podesta is molesting children at, or whatever it oh, is, yeah. uh, in uh, Northwest Washington D.C. And that pizzeria article, it was just some tiny little crazy fake news article that was written by yeah. somebody who was just like, "I'm going to write something totally crazy," like writing the Attack of the Killer Tomatoes yeah. movie script or something like that. That wasn't real. Online. I didn't know that. Was Steve P. said that was real. <laughs> um, uh, so. Uh, but imagine if Attack of the Killer Tomatoes got not just put out there into space, but then people started writing articles about saying yeah. the Attack of the Killer Tomatoes was true. And then computers, individual users like you or me, were getting hacked. And our hacked email addresses and, and Twitter accounts were promoting the article yeah. about the Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Yeah. <laughs> and then computer systems were getting hacked. And those computer systems, what they were doing was doing request after request after request of request to the article about the attack of the killer tomatoes. And after hundreds of thousands and millions of computer requests of that article, the Google algorithms start to say, hey, this attack of the killer tomatoes story, this is real. And this is like people are reading this. So now it's coming up to the top of every search. You do a search about, you know... Uh, my marinara sauce recipe, and up comes the top thing is Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. And you now have created this environment in the digital space where not only have you uh, written something that's totally fake and proliferated as it's something that's real, but you've also used the hacking of individual users yeah. and the hacking of computer systems to help proliferate it and to magnify it to the point at which certain people are going to get more stories about killer tomatoes than they are about regular produce or salads or you know anything else. Yeah, so sure. yeah. that's what happened this last election cycle. Now, I don't get into it much in the article. I kind of dismiss it because what I want to talk about in the series that we do is, you know, things that legitimate campaigns can do <laughs> within the rules and um, and how legitimate campaigns are uh, using data in this example. Uh, to help get out a message, mm -hmm. I don't want to write the cookbook for how to, um, yeah. you know, leave that to Capital Weekly. We can do that. Yeah, <laughs> you, somebody else will write the cookbook on how to uh, proliferate digital terrorism in 2018. You know, I'm sure there will be some of it. Yeah, honestly, sure. You know, yeah. Um, and hopefully our laws will catch up to yeah. at least domestically making sure it doesn't happen. And then with what's happening in international elections. Uh, we just need to become more sophisticated. We need to be able to realize that that article that's coming up at the top of our Google search probably fake. Right. Paul Mitchell, thank you very much. Thank you very much. This is John Howard. We'll see you next time around. Take care, Paul. Thank you.